Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Socrates and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Today, the guest on my show is actually a person who needs no introduction. He is in fact a person who is at fault of me starting my blog and this uh, podcast consequently and actually a lot of the things that I have been doing in my life for the last three or four years starting with my master's degree thesis and um, eventually going through Singularity University Um, and so with uh, great excitement and a lot of trepidation I have to admit that I'm very happy to be here at Ray (coughs) Kurzweil's office. Thank you for having us Ray. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for taking time. So, Ray, um, I have an exponential list of questions for you today. Unfortunately, I am aware your time is very precious, so we wouldn't be able to go through them all today. Uh, But let's start at the very beginning. In your recent book, you say that it was at at the age of five years that you've decided to be an inventor. So would you mind sharing with us how and why you got inspired to be an inventor? Well, that's a good question. Maybe a few more years of analysis will reveal the answer to that. But my parents were very into the idea of learn by doing, and they gave me lots of enrichment toys, which were popular at that time. These were toys that had lots of little pieces that you could put together, and you could combine pieces from different toys, erector sets. I had had very elaborate erector sets, and uh, I would augment my inventory by going through the neighborhood and bringing back either electronic things like radios or bicycles and take them apart and add to my inventory of, uh, of, of pieces. And I had this idea that, gee, if I could just figure out how to put them together in the right way, I could create transcendent effects. Now, I didn't have that vocabulary at age five. I think I came up with that, I, that wording a few years ago. But uh, I can remember the feeling... It was a magical feeling, like, wow, there's there's a secret here. I could just figure out how to put them together. We could solve any problem. Um, And I did not succeed, really, in doing that uh, at age five. Uh, I remember one of my first projects was to build a rocket ship to the moon. And uh, I built, actually, a very nice nose cone. But And I figured, well, I'll I'll figure out how to, the propulsion system later... um, when I got to be eight, I had actually some systems that worked. It was, I built a robotic puppet theater that uh, I had a command station with little gears and levers, and I could command the world from my command station. I could move the sun and the stars and people on or off the stage and clouds, and I could move their, their arms and, and heads. And uh, I was in control of the world remotely. It was kind of a virtual reality world, and I showed it at school, and people thought it was pretty cool. Uh, That was age eight. Uh, But I actually remember thinking, I'm going to be an inventor, and other kids were wondering what they were going to do. They're going to be a teacher, a fireman, a nurse. I had this conceit, I know what I'm going to be. And, And so it's very interesting to see that passion for changing the world for the better, uh, and and getting those that transcendental effect, but I'm just trying to nail it down for a five year old kid. How would that effect look like? Would you 
would you get, uh, uh, you know, commended from your parents by doing something cool as an invention at, at, of a five or six year old? Or was it your peers that you were looking to, to get that effect on? Or I didn't have much input from peers at that age. That came a lot later. Uh, I think my, my parents were very encouraging of my experimenting. Uh, they were also very busy. My father was, was a, was kind of a famous musician and I didn't see him that much and I got left on my, on my own quite a bit. So I needed to fill in my time. Uh, that was a factor. I was shy. So rather than going out and playing with other kids, I would, you know, create my own fantasy worlds. Uh, Cause I'm trying to nail down, was there an episode that reinforced that desire to invent in a positive way, obviously, which sort of created that reward that you kept looking for after, if we can nail it down, if it's possible at all. I can't point to any successes uh, at age five or six <laughs> or seven. Age eight, I got some positive feedback from my teacher and from other students and my parents. Mm -hmm. with this mechanical puppet theater. Uh, and that was actually the emergence of Ramona because I created this female character who I could move on stage and she could move and mm -hmm. I, I could move the sun and stars and it's kind of the beginning of virtual reality. But I, I did have this feeling I could recreate the world by putting things together in a new way. And, and then I discovered the computer at age 12 and really had the idea that we could recreate the world in a computer. Yeah, I've seen some archival footage of you in, in a TV show where you went to demonstrate one of your inventions. Yeah, there. that was six, age 16. It was a project I started when I was 14 to build my own computer and program it to compose music in the style of famous composers. Mm -hmm. And so I came on this show. It was called I've Got a Secret. <clears throat> and I, uh, so you whisper a secret to the, to the TV audience and then a, a panel of celebrity uh celebrities tries to guess what it is it's asking yes or no questions and uh so i came on and played a piece of music and my secret was i uh, built a computer and programmed it to compose the music uh bess myerson who had been miss america didn't get it but then uh a famous actor uh was able to guess it on the first shot i think he guessed it too which was well th this particular TV segment is actually heavily edited. There's oh, actually more, a lot of more questions, so you're just seeing it kind of get right to the punchline. I see. And so is it fair to say then that we can trace this kind of a motivation throughout your work, starting at a very early age, in other words, to have a positive impact on the world in general around you, for, to, to accomplish that transcendental impact that you mentioned? Well, I did have the idea from early age that the right ideas could changed the world. And that was actually something I got from my family. That was the family religion. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember when I was maybe eight, my grandfather came back from Europe. It was his first trip to Europe after fleeing uh, Vienna in 1938, fleeing the Nazis. Um, and he had been given the opportunity to handle with his own hands some original documents by Leonardo da Vinci. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think one of his codexes, uh, which now Bill Gates owns, and he described it a, a, in, in kind of reverential terms, like it was a religious experience. But this was not something handed down by God. This was a document that had been created by a human. But that was the ultimate transcendence. 
uh, a human being creating ideas that ultimately change the world. So that was kind of the, the family philosophy that the right ideas can overcome any barrier. They had overcome great challenges like the Nazis, at least for their own family with, uh, with their own ideas. And uh, that's the philosophy I kind of, yeah, you mentioned uh, many interesting words there that I'd like to grab, like transcendental religion, philosophy. So I want to see if there's any connection between those two. So first of all, um, what are your religious associations? You said that basically changing the world for the better was kind of, or believing that you Well, actually another the uh, influence on me was my religious upbringing, which was in a Unitarian church. So my parents were Jews who fled Hitler. Uh, they wanted a less provincial, more universal religious upbringing. And so this Unitarian church had the philosophy of many paths to the truth. And uh, the religious education consisted of spending six months on one religion, say Catholicism. And we would go to those uh, religious services, read those books, have those religious leaders come into and talk to us in our discussion groups. Then we'd spend six months on Buddhism and then six months on Judaism and Hinduism and and the idea is that certain fundamental truths are reflected by all of these religions. Uh, the apparent contradictions are not, are not uh, real contradictions in the world. It's one world. It's so transcendent that, you know, apparently contradictory perspectives on it can all be true. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we looked for the, the commonalities in different religions. So one theme was tolerance. And another theme was sort of social justice. We actually took trips down to the South to participate in the civil rights marches. This is in the 1950s in the United States. Um, so there was, a, there was a concern with uh, social equality, uh, overcoming problems with ideas, uh, tolerance of different perspectives. It was not sort of one dogma. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that had an influence on me. Now, one of the things that some people mentioned on my blog when I asked them to submit potential questions to you was that somehow you don't seem to be speaking a lot about social inequality. And the perception out there is that it's, it's the, the social inequality in America is not getting better, but it's, it's been getting worse it's in particular for the past decade. So would you care to say a few words on that topic? Uh, well, I don't think it's true that I don't talk about it or concerned about it. In fact, I've, my family was very oriented towards social justice, uh, and we were involved in the earliest stages of, of the civil rights movement, as I as I mentioned. And my family influence continues to be concerned with these issues. Uh, I do think that technology has been an equalizer, and that people's perspectives. Uh, distorted because they don't remember what things were like. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you look at, uh, say, worldwide, uh, the rate of poverty, there's still great poverty in the world, but it's greatly reduced. Poverty's, uh, uh, profound poverty has been reduced by 90% in Asia over the last 15 years. 15, 20 years ago, most Asian nations uh, had economies of... Uh, pretty primitive agrarian mm-hmm. uh, types of systems, and most people are pushing a plow. Today they have thriving information economies and uh, are far wealthier than they were. It's true in the United States, too. If you look at 
uh, how people live today, even people who are considered to be in poverty, it, it bears no relationship to what poverty was like, say, 50 years ago. Uh, 50 years and, ago, I agree entirely, but would you say that there's been some deterioration for the past decade, or...? Uh, I don't know. 10 years ago, people didn't use search engines. People didn't have Wikipedia. They didn't have social networks. Um, and these are actually very widespread phenomena, even among people that are but I mean, at I'm the lower stratas of society. So, I mean, uh, it's all relative, and our perspectives change. Uh, technology is bringing about uh, greater wealth, and it's not just the gadgets we carry around. It's going to affect everything we care about uh, with the advent of three-dimensional printing. Physical things are going to become information. I believe in the open source movement. I think the future economy will be a combination of open source information and proprietary information. And they're both beneficial. So, I mean, today, for example, there are millions of songs that are free, millions of, of videos and movies, books that are completely free. You can have a really good time with just free open source information. Nonetheless, proprietary forms still do well. People still pay for Harry Potter or for the latest software or, or, or hit movie. Um, and that's, that will be the nature of the economy in the future. But it's not just going to be entertainment and information. Physical things, like there was a violin printed out on a three-dimensional printer that was on the cover of The Economist, and uh, that's going to become information, and there'll be open-source versions of that. At Singularity University, there was a project to use three-dimensional printing to print out houses, and uh, one module at a time. Um, what is your other... health, health and medicine is becoming an information technology, and the law of accelerating returns means that if, that if a product or service has to do with information, it's going to cost half as much. There's a 50% deflation rate per year to cost half as much a year later. Uh, we put some of that uh, price performance into better performance and some of it into lower price. So you can buy an iPhone that's half, twice as good for half the money two years later. Uh, and ultimately, it's going to sort of affect everything we care about. There's going to be a big food revolution. This beginning now a higher education revolution where yeah. people can get high-quality education for free. Just by You've got to you thousands of yeah. schools already today in Africa taking free, very high-quality courses online at, at no cost. These are fantastically wonderful things. They do not get measured at all. Oh, it's free? It, when you look at the economic statistics, it counts for zero yeah. because it, there's no money involved. Uh, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have real value in terms of people's lives. Mm -hmm. So if education, availability of, of uh, high-quality health information and so on, physical products and, from three-dimensional printing all become uh, exponentially more available as we go forward, it's having an impact on people's lives. Uh, so you've mentioned uh, uh, just briefly property rights and, and so on. So let me ask you, what's your attitude towards patents and intellectual property rights? Are they an enabler of progress or are, are they actually a hindrance to, to development? Well, both. Uh, one issue is that the time frame of a patent or a copyright, which now is about 20, it used to be 17 years for a patent from grant, now it's 20 years from applications. It has stayed, has stayed about the same, about two decades or about eight decades for copyrights. 
hasn't changed at all in light of the uh, law of accelerating returns. So the patent law was put in place, which is in the 19th century. Uh, 20 years gave, you know, it was just, it wasn't even a full generation of technology. It was maybe part of a generation. So it kind of gave you a head start. You could kind of get established before, you know, that generation of technology was established. How many generations of technology is 20 years now? 20, 50? I mean, uh, it's, it's forever for all practical purposes. So we need to reconsider these time frames in light of the fact that the significance of time has changed. Yeah. 80 years for a copyright is wild. I mean, that's much too long. Yeah. That being said, I think some intellectual property protection is needed. Um, in, in light of the, uh, the fact that patents can be difficult for technologies that don't self-disclose. I worked in speech recognition, for example, and mm-hmm. if you had some user interface that was very clear from using the product and patented that, then you could tell if that's being infringed. But if you had some method for how you recognize speech, it was buried in the software, uh, nobody could tell if the software used it. So if, someone, so if you disclosed it in the patent, someone could infringe it and you'd never know. Uh, so trade secrets were important, and that continues, I think, to actually be the most important part of intellectual property protection, know-how and, uh, and trade secrets. Uh, but it costs a lot of money to create intellectual property. I mean, it costs many millions of dollars to create a sophisticated software product. How much does a movie cost to make? It can cost tens of millions, a hundred million dollars. A movie album, uh, a music album can cost a million or two. Uh, unless you protect the business models that allow that capital formation to but take let me place. Give you a potential scenario for creating of artificial intelligence, for example, take either Ramona or a, a project equivalent to Ramona, which easily could spend tens and hundreds and maybe even a new Manhattan project of a sort of billions of dollars. Now, what kind of claims can we put onto the creative output of an artificial intelligence? after it comes to be and to exist as such, provided that we have spent so much money to put it to exist in the first place? Well, uh, we don't recognize uh, machine intelligences as people yet. Uh, We do recognize some non-human entities as people, like corporations, uh, definitely enter into contracts and have all kinds of rights. Mm -hmm. Countries have rights. Uh, will future AIs have rights? I mean, uh, I think they will. I mean, my own view is that they will be people. Uh, and this will be controversial, but it, it's going to become so clear eventually. It's not going to happen on one day. Someone will claim to uh, have an AI that's passed the Turing test, and I probably won't believe it. Because, uh, in fact, the Loebner competition is getting close already, and I think it's too easy a test. Mm-hmm. But the essence of a, of, a, of a valid Turing test, which is that it really is convincing, this AI is absolutely convincing, has all the subtle cues uh, and subtle behaviors that you associate with real emotional responses and uh, really seems like a person, you'll accept it as a person. And, I mean, how long are we going to go with these non, non-biological people that people really do accept as people I mean, that's my leap of faith, that if it seems like a person, it is. And my 
objective prediction is that the majority of biological people will accept these AIs as people once they are really convincing. How long are you going to go without recognizing their legal rights? So if they have legal rights, then they'll have the ability to have uh, intellectual property too. Uh, so would you be uh, willing to also be a pioneer? Because I know you're working on and hoping that Ramona would be the first AI to pass the Turing test, if I'm correct, right? Or among the first, anyway. Sure. I mean, I'm working on AI, uh, particularly on natural language understanding, and mm -hmm. the Turing test is a natural language test. So, so um, say today is 2029, and... Mm -hmm you have succeeded. Yeah. Does that mean that tomorrow, the next day, you would be willing to rescind or, or disclaim any ownership of the creative output of that entity? Because, you know, somebody needs to lead the way, I, I suppose. And if you've been leading the way in creating it, then don't you bear the responsibility of sort of signing the, 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 the be the first to sort of liberate it? It's a great question, uh, and I guess the answer would have to be yes. Uh, it's going to happen sooner or later, otherwise it's a form of slavery. Absolutely. Um, and, but a lot of things have to be rethought because the nature of this intelligence is going to be different uh, in that it can manifest itself in new and surprising ways. It can be copied, it can be copied and modified. Uh, was kind of used to this idea that uh, human intelligence comes in these discrete packages and mm -hmm. that has a body and it takes place kind of in a nervous system with some influence of the whole body, but it's a it's a discrete package and it's not so easily copied. We have a form of reproduction, but it's you know long and messy and mm -hmm. complicated. Um, that that brings up lots of issues, we can't so easily apply a legal and moral system that uh, was designed for these one-to-one -one physical substrate to, to conscious intelligent mapping. Um, and I, I haven't thought through all of those issues, uh, but society will have to confront them. Mm -hmm. um, let me just uh, zoom back a little bit and go go a little bit more explicitly and talk a little about the technological singularity. Now, I've done about 70 interviews so far for my podcast, and uh, I've interviewed some of the you know, most cutting-edge people in the field, and it's interesting for me to, to watch both the optimists and the pessimists. So for the sake of the argument, uh, let me quote, for example, David Ferrucci, uh, who I interviewed a few months ago, who was the head of Watson, uh, of course, um, he said uh, to me that, um, first of all, he didn't see a way of how an AI from where it, Watson is today would get to the level that you're describing in the book, in the technological singularity and being able to pass the Turing test. So he couldn't see a way of getting there. And secondly, he said that in his opinion, only people could create value and machines in their own right were just better at classifying, identifying, and accessing it at request. So what do you respond to criticisms like that? Well, I think it's a very myopic view. Uh, but the people who put uh, Watson together 
were putting other systems together that actually did the work. And they had something called the UMA framework, which is a, a framework of, it's kind of an expert manager of taking lots of different programs, each of which has some expertise in natural language and being able to combine their results, essentially using Shannon's information theorems that if each one is kind of a little bit correct and uh, even if they're very inaccurate, you can put lots of things together and get a much more accurate result. And that worked brilliantly. Uh, but really the magic of the technology is in those individual systems. And for the most part, they're using, those systems are using self-organizing methods that are at least mathematically similar to something like hierarchical hidden Markov models. Mm-hmm. So another criticism is, oh, the, Watson has no real understanding. It's just uh, doing statistical analysis, by which people misunderstand thinking it's just doing statistics on word sequences. But actually, the statistics refers to the embedded parameters in these self-organizing models. And if that doesn't represent true understanding, then the human brain has no true understanding either, because that's exactly how the human brain works. Mm-hmm. And I describe in my new book... Uh, how to create a mind, uh, a model of how the neocortex works. And it has, again, these distributed probabilities, um, which are just statistical information based on what we've learned. And we put that together, we have 300 million of these pattern recognizers, and they're all kind of potentially processing at the same time. And we make judgments based on that very elaborate statistical process. And it's very similar, in fact, to what happens in these individual systems in Watson. Then these individual systems are combined also by probabilities with this framework. Mm -hmm. So I found some statements by the leadership of the Watson team to uh, really be uh, on the wrong level. the statistical understanding is a deep form of statistics with very distributed probabilities uh, in, a, in a network uh, that learns. And that's basically how the neocortex works. Mm-hmm. I uh, want to come back to your book uh, in a second. Now, now, I would say, I mean, if you look at, Watson was not hand-coded by those scientists. They didn't code you know, some, in some language uh, like Lisp. Uh, that there was a queen in Norway with blonde hair and so on. I mean, that it got all that information, vast amounts of information, by reading natural language documents, including Wikipedia. And, David went through all of that. He explained how the architecture roughly And if you look at its understanding of one page, it's less than a human. So you could read one of those pages, and if you didn't happen to know who the President of the United States was, you could read one page and come out, you know, 90% sure that Barack Obama was president of the United States. And Watson would read it and come out with a confidence level of that Barack Obama was president of the United States of 58%. But it's read tens of thousands of pages that have to do with the presidency mm-hmm. and c- combine that validly using Bayes' theorem and, and Shannon's theorem and, and come out with a confidence that, uh, of 99.9% that Barack Obama was president of the United States. So it's able to combine lots of different sources. We essentially do that in the human brain itself. Now, if you were to take Watson today and just gear it at a different application, at a Turing test rather than Jeopardy, uh, and you had it keep track of its own conversation, so its own conversation with the interlocutor 
would be another source of text that it would be analyzing and understanding at, at some level. Mm -hmm. It would have its own fictional uh, narrative of its own life, so it could, could pretend to be a human, which is part of the game. Uh, I'm not so sure it would lose a test, let's say, like the Lo Loebner competition, which I think is too easy. Mm -hmm. Probably it would not pass a test that I think is hard enough. Uh, Oh, but it yeah. would pass some versions of the Turing test, perhaps. It would be a lot better than a lot of the chatbots that enter today. Uh, but I think we can take a lot of confidence for how well Watson does with this, with this statistical approach. And that is the right approach because that is how the human brain works. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to come back in a second to your book. But before we get there, I want to sort of cover a few of the... Um, perhaps from my point of view, less uh, discussed criticism towards your views on the technological singularity in general. So, for example, I interviewed uh, one science fiction writer called uh, uh, Carl Schroeder, who is also a futurist, and uh, his criticism uh, was uh, from, from a foresight point of view that when you create a single lens that you look through the future, you become like a rigid bridge. You have no give. So for him... The singularity is a, is a very valuable lens of viewing the future, but it's only one of multiplicity of scenarios that we must view the future through. And in his opinion, it's not even one of the more probable ones. It's a possible one, but not a very probable one. And he offered a number of different ones, and he said predicting the future, in, in his opinion, was impossible. Uh, so the best way to approach it is he has a multiple different scenarios and different benchmarks or indicators that give us uh, signs whether we're moving along scenario A or B or C. And the moment we embrace a single scenario, we're cutting out all the okay, possibilities. Well, let me comment on that. I sure. mean, that's not a, I, don't, I don't see that as a criticism because my thesis is the law of accelerating returns. And some very dramatic changes to human civilization arise from the consequences, implications of that. Mm -hmm. And in The Singularity is Near, I lay out a very comprehensive case for the law of accelerating returns. And him just saying, oh, well, there are different scenarios, and maybe it's this and maybe that, is not a criticism of the law of accelerating returns. I have a very strong theoretical case. I have a very strong empirical case, which is not just looking backwards. I started in the early 80s making forward predictions. This curve I have on a logarithmic scale of of price performance of computation, uh, I laid out in the early 80s through 2050, we're now in 2012 exactly where we should be. It's been remarkably predictable. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is applied to every other information technology. So some people come and say, well, uh, men's shavers haven't, you know, they went from one blade to two blades to four blades. Well, where are the eight blade shavers? And that's not an information technology. And not, I'm not saying every exponential goes on forever, and even these exponentials don't go on forever. I talk about, based on the laws of physics, how much, how far we can go with molecular computing based on what we know about the uh, physics of computing or, mem or remembering or transmitting a bit of information. And, uh, but we can go to a point where we will multiply human intelligence trillions fold, mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and stay within our understanding of molecular computing. But yeah. that's the point where he has a problem with, because he says if one of the elements of a given system is moving at an exponential pace of development, that doesn't mean that the whole system would eventually start moving at it. And by the way, that's a, something that I think Ramez Naam, who was participating well, in the okay, creation of the, the, I mean, the thesis is that the two requirements for strong AI... I mean, there are a lot of other implications on longevity and nanotech, but the strong AI, AI at the human level and beyond, is the key to the singularity. And are, so there's a number of elements of this analysis. One is how much computation do you need? And mm-hmm. I've analyzed that in Singularities Near. I take a completely new approach in this, in this uh, mind book and come up with the same answer. We already have supercomputers that exceed that level. Uh, well, Personal computers at $1,000 will reach that level later in this decade. Uh, the other issue is the software. People say, oh, software's stuck in the mud, but I give lots of evidence that that's not the case. Watson is just one data point uh, that belies that, but the, the sophistication of software is improving, and, and I talk about ways of measuring it. There was a recent major study done by the Scientific Advisory Board for Barack Obama that concluded that software is making even more rapid exponential progress in hardware. Mm -hmm. And I make the case that we will have the software view intelligence by 2029. I think that's looking increasingly conservative. Then if you have human-level AI, it's necessarily greater than, than human because look at Watson. It can defeat the best two Jeopardy players even though it has a weaker level of human uh, understanding of natural language than the humans Absolutely. because of its tremendous scale and the fact that it doesn't that it doesn't forget anything uh, and the speed it can read all of wikipedia in a matter of a week you, know, you and i couldn't do that it can remember it all i mean you and i could read wikipedia it would take a few years we'd forget 95 percent of it uh, so when in fact computers can operate at human levels they'll necessarily be superior to it and they'll continue to improve at, exp- at an exponential pace. So you've got to look at all those very specific arguments mm-hmm. and not just say, well, we don't know what the future is. It could be A, B, or C. And I mean, that, that's not really a critique of my thesis. Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps the last one that I just want to bring to, uh, to light here and then we can move on would be something that Charlie Strauss sent, said to me in, in his interview with him, which kind of surprised me because he wrote that book called Accelerando. <laughs> And so I thought that he would be a singularity optimist, but it turns out he's very pessimistically predisposed towards the singularity. And in a, in a nutshell, what he said was, look, the world is complicated. Elegant narratives that explain everything are always wrong, in his opinion. And for him, the singularity is a very beautiful, very elegant thesis to explain the world. But in fact, it's always much more messy and, and harder than... And well, I don't think it explains the world. Uh, you can... I mean, it explains certain things, like the price performance of computing and communications and genetic sequencing and brain scanning today it, what has been predicted very well by the law of accelerating returns. But it doesn't predict everything uh, and explain the implications and the fact that we have a black U.S. president and, and and that there was a revolution in Egypt. And so there's lots about the world that we can't explain. I believe we can anticipate with confidence uh, stronger than human intelligence. I, 
Now, I believe that an implication of that is we're going to make ourselves smarter, we're going to merge with it, uh, but other people may have other views, but I think the emergence of, of AI at human levels and beyond uh, is something we can really have confidence in. The implications of that is something that's not clear. So I don't think mm -hmm. these theories explain everything. It's not the end of history. In fact, I think history will speed up. There's going to be lots of implications as we add you know, human motivations uh, and competition to this story. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, perhaps now is the time to bring in the, the sort of the new book that I just finished reading, by the way, and, and I have to say I enjoy it tremendously. Uh, and perhaps you could share with us um, sort of the idea behind this pattern recognition theory of the mind that you propose in this, in this book. Yeah. Well, I've actually had the idea that what the brain does is recognize patterns for 50 years. Because uh, I actually started 50 years ago a pattern recognition project, which was to try to find the patterns in music and write original music. But I had, I remember the paper I wrote, uh, which uh, got me a meeting with President Johnson. Uh, that the secret of human intelligence was was pattern recognition, and that has been my main interest of uh, of scientific uh, exploration is is pattern recognition. And I did pioneering work in character recognition, speech recognition, and other forms of and natural language understanding in the eighties and nineties and and the past decade. Um, and I present here a thesis for how the neocortex works. That's, by the way, one of the regions of the brain, but it's it's kind of where the action is. That's where we do our thinking. Uh, it's a revolutionarily recent structure. It emerged with mammals. It allows us to do hierarchical thinking. So I can create a whole bunch of, put a whole bunch of ideas together, and I give that a symbol, and I call that an idea. And then, and then I can use that symbol with other symbols and create another idea. And then I can give that a, a name. And then I can use that name with other ideas and create another idea. And I build up this whole hierarchy of ideas and patterns. Uh, that's, that's the essence of what the neocortex does. It allows animals that have one to learn new skills that have a hierarchy to them, that that allow it to think in a more creative, adaptable way. Uh, 65 million years ago, there was a Cretaceous extinction event. We think it had to do with the media, but we do know uh, that the environment changed radically. We can see a whole level of sediment uh, in the Earth that represents 65 million years ago that something very dramatic happened. And a lot of animal species that didn't have a neocortex non-mammalian species died out because the only way they can learn is not an individual can't learn anything uh, of any significance other than what it's kind of genetically programmed to learn. Uh, it can only learn by adapting over many generations through biological evolution. That takes thousands of years. Well, this event, generally that was actually fast enough. Environments would change very slowly, so over time biological evolution was enough for these animals to change their behavior. Uh, but this event was happened so quickly uh, that they couldn't adapt fast enough and they died out. That was when the mammals took over. And biological evolution 
found this neocortex to be so useful, it kept growing it over time. Uh, in these early rodents, it was paper thin, it was flat, and the size of a postage stamp. Eventually, it, it, it achieved sort of curvature and convolutions uh, to increase its surface area. It's still a thin structure in a human being. If you stretch it out, because it's very convoluted, it's about the size of a table napkin and has about the same thickness. Uh, but it actually comprises now 80% of the brain. And it's where we do our hierarchical thinking. It's where we learn things. And I describe a thesis for how this works in the book. And actually some of the best evidence for this theory came out in just in the last few months of my writing the book. Uh -huh. uh, because uh, the law of accelerating returns is affecting our ability to look inside the brain and understand it. Uh, now, just recently, we can actually look inside a living brain and see it with enough spatial and temporal resolution to see uh, individual interneural connections being formed, uh, being closing their synapses, firing in real time. We could never see that before. MRI just kind of tells you where something is happening, but doesn't tell you enough precision to, to see how what the methods are. But recent techniques are really showing us how the brain works. So there's a couple of observations about the neocortex. One is that it's extremely uniform. Now, Vernon Mountcastle noticed that over half a century ago, just physically, it looks the same. Um, a lot of the recent evidence uh, shows the complete interchangeability of the regions. So a lot of neuroscience is fond of saying, uh, talking about specialization. Well, this region, the fruciform gyrus, recognizes faces, and this region, V1, does primitive edge detection and sort of very low-level shapes and visual images and so on. But it turns out that if, and that's, that is normally how the information flows, but if that normal flow is disrupted through stroke or injury or disability, uh, it will, uh, the regions take over for another region's function. A very dramatic example is, is a recent study of uh, congenitally blind people that V1, which is considered to be dealing with very low-level visual features, actually takes on high-level language concepts uh, because there's no visual information to process. So there's a complete interchangeability of the neocortex. And through a combination of neuroscience, my own work in artificial intelligence, showing how these systems could work, and thought experiments that I describe in the book, I provide evidence for a thesis that the neocortex consists of about 300 million modules, and each one recognizes a pattern, and they're organized in hierarchies. The organization within a module, which is about 100 neurons, is actually fixed and is not plastic and does not change. There's also very recent research on that, showing that there are these modules that are very fixed in their topology and connections uh, throughout life, but the connections between those modules is... is a, is where we uh, develop and learn. And so that, uh, how we wire up our neocortex uh, is based on our own experience and our own learning. And we learn one conceptual level at a time. So, we have, so I have some modules that are very good at recognizing the crossbar in a capital A. It looks around and goes, ah, crossbar, ah, crossbar. <laughs> And it feeds up to a higher level, and then there's a module at a higher level that goes, 
aha, capital A. And that feeds up to a higher level. And there, there might be a module that says, aha, the word Apple is, has been written. Uh, in another region, there might be a, a similar module that goes, aha, an actual Apple in my visual field of view. And in another region, it, there might be a module that says, someone just said the word Apple. Go up another 20, 30 levels, and it's combining input from different senses, and it's undergone many different levels of abstraction. And it, it might uh, fire and say, oh, she's pretty. Uh, that was ironic. That's funny. You probably think that those are much more complicated than those simple ones that recognize edges or crossbars and capital A's. They're actually the same. They just exist at a different level in this vast hierarchy. We build that hierarchy ourselves. It reflects our knowledge of, of language, of every all the objects we see in the world, the people we know, the concepts. Uh, and so we are. it's true that we are what we eat, but we very much are what we think. Uh, and I talk about how that process works. It's tremendous redundancy, so I don't just have one uh, module that recognizes a crossbar or, or, or beauty or irony. Um, so let me ask you about the next step. After, uh, let's say, we establish the facts surrounding the pattern recognition theory of mind, how is that helping us towards the goal of accomplishing general artificial intelligence, for example? Well, I think uh, it hasn't helped a whole lot uh, up until now uh, because we haven't really been able to see inside the brain with enough uh, precision. Ironically, though, and I, it's not an accident, uh, the methods that have been the most powerful in, in AI, which are these self-organizing methods that are statistical, but not a superficial statistical method. They are hierarchical methods uh, that have many distributed probabilities that can estimate the probability of concepts at different levels. Uh, for example, hierarchical hidden Markov models is one such technique, which I helped pioneer in the uh, decades ago, uh, is mathematically very similar to what I described. And it's not because we were copying the brain, because we didn't know how the brain worked. But the evolution of the brain and the evolution of AI kind of arrived at the same solution, mm -hmm. even though the, the evolution of the brain preceded the evolution of AI. Um, because they, they work. Uh, but if we have a more precise, crisp understanding of what the brain is doing, we can use that as a biologically inspired method. So there are projects like the Blue Brain Project to simulate the brain. Uh, the purpose of that is not that that's the right way to build AI. And uh, Markram, the head of that project, wouldn't claim that's the case. Uh -huh. It's really to... Those projects are to understand the brain, to verify the models we have. If those simulations work at some level, then we can verify that our functional models are accurate. But ultimately, we want to really understand what are the salient information processes that enable the brain to do intelligent things. Mm -hmm. And then use that as a biologically inspired uh, method for AI. For creating I, AI. So yeah, and I think we're going to make tremendous progress over the next few years, really, uh, based on the insights that, that we now have. Mm -hmm. So here's, by the way, another question from one of my uh, blog readers, who is, I think, right on topic here, who says, 
Ray has said that the brain creates the mind and that the mind creates the brain. When a reverse engineered brain is eventually well, built... Well, in fact, I, I said our thoughts, our brain creates our thoughts and our thoughts create our brain. So I imagine he uh, identifies mind the is mind a with a different thoughts. issue, but... Yeah. Is it? Well, mind is bringing in the, the concepts of consciousness, free will, and identity, which is a whole separate discussion. But my quote yeah. was that our, our brain creates our thoughts. That's never... That's not controversial, but mm-hmm. our thoughts create our brain. Uh, it's very much what we're thinking is creating new connections. And the entire organization, the hierarchical organization we have of these hundreds of millions of pen recognizers is from everything we've thought from day one. Yes. So, so when, a, when a reverse engineered brain is eventually built on a digital substrate, will we not be able to know the the mind is present as we can o- as we can only measure or see the brain in other words how would we know there's any thoughts happening in in the brain if we only can measure the brain as a brain and not as thoughts well scientific- how do we know it's a functional scientifically brain? physically uh there are these interactions going on with the neocortex uh and we have one thought triggering another, and thoughts uh, are patterns which are comprised of many sub-patterns, and each of those sub-patterns are comprised of sub-patterns, and uh, that, is, that is what thought is. And if you had a non-biological system, some computerized system, maybe a very parallel one, but nonetheless it's, it's not biological, doing a similar thing and behaving in a similar way, it's having thoughts too. Uh, now, is it conscious? It brings in this whole separate issue and discussion. But mm-hmm. uh, the the one goal of AI is putting consciousness aside is to actually, perf- you know, make intelligent decisions and help. I think help humans make intelligent decisions. But but then wouldn't that presume that those AIs would actually care enough to spend time pondering the human our very human problems they might have actually more interesting more challenging things to do and therefore if we expect that that kind of uh, uh, vocation by them we're we would sort of be putting them in a box wouldn't we well it brings up the issue of the old Freedom. brain uh, a lot of our desires and needs stem from our old brain. Our old brain hasn't gone away. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole pleasure center and, and fear center is, is in the old brain. Mm-hmm. Now, the, you can think of the neocortex as a very clever bureaucracy that has translated these primitive desires and, and fears into something more sophisticated. It's called sublimation. Sublimation is done by the neocortex. But we still have this neocortex, so we desire something and we're afraid of something. That's all stems from the neocortex. I give some brief description of how that works, and that is, uh, so in terms of human goals, you have to consider that. Um, We have the opportunity of giving new goals to these AIs. They may decide to reset their own goals. They're not being created in a vacuum. I mean, they're actually literally being created now uh, as servants to biological humans to expand our own intelligence. They're tools. Uh, Of course, a lot of the 
interesting discussion is what, what happens when they transcend just being a tool of ours. Uh, no one would claim that any of these systems yet has done that, but... Um, and you know. how would we know that they are at the moment? I think that's what the viewer, the, 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 the person was getting at. How do we differentiate between our programming, which was originally inputted into this potentially simulation or emulation, and how do we know that there's originality coming into well, the it's, it's a it's a continuum. I mean, already so much of the world is is, is modulated, if not controlled by computers. If all the com computers, or even the AI software, was stopped tomorrow, nothing would work. Transportation, communication, banking, everything would would halt. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of intelligent decision making, which is not so simple. Uh, even say, take Watson, the creators of Watson have, can't predict what Watson's going to do. Yeah. In fact, they, the creators of Watson, the people in charge of that project, didn't even create the most interesting parts of the system because they created the framework and there's mm -hmm. all these different modules that are doing natural language processing. Uh, if you got them all in a room together, they couldn't collectively predict what Watson would do because it's so uh, complex. Um, it's not actually as complex as a human, but so but that's a continuum. You know, I think by the twenty twenties they will be as complex as humans as and as interesting as humans. And in some cases will be human like. In other cases they'll have different motivations. Mm -hmm. Uh I mean we're gonna want them to, to help us solve world problems. Like how can we We would um, want them to solve those problems, but would they want in turn to help us? Well that's how we're going to set them up. <laughs> um, and but they'll be intelligent enough to you know reconsider their own goals in light of their values, values which we gave them. Mm -hmm. But they, but you know, just because they're taking values that we gave them doesn't mean they'll come to the same conclusions we would come to. Um, they will ultimately be more independent as as they uh, get to be more. Uh, complex, but I mean, I, I deal with. We have a system that invests in the stock market, and uh, sometimes it seems very prescient, and we can't predict what it's going to do. Mm -hmm. It's looking at millions of things constantly. Yeah, um, and it's it has complex algorithms, and it's interacting with an even more complex world, and so it acts like a like a human actor because uh, it's unpredictable. Right, we are kind of approaching the end of our interview here, so I would kind of. Uh, rush to do the last three questions because I know your time is very valuable. So perhaps the last uh, criticism or con point of consideration that I want to bring uh, with respect to your book is um, the value and the importance of intelligence as an evolutionary advantage. Now, you've mentioned that uh, uh, extinction event that happened about 65 million years ago. Uh, and uh, at that time, a niche organism, uh, which was the mammals at that time, became the predominant form of... Uh, In its niche of, of uh, animals of a certain size. My question is... Because we didn't wipe out the insects, for example. Exactly. But my question is, can the reverse happen? Can, we, can some event occur which would destroy the evolutionary advantage that intelligence provides us with? In, in such a way that lower intelligence uh, organism would be more 
able to adapt to the environment than higher intelligence. And for example, we might even get into a situation in which like we start building things like ants build build ant hills and, and so on without having the the individual intelligence but sort of somehow distributed across the species. Well um I mean one event like that could happen tomorrow, which is <clears throat> we have been living for half a century with an existential risk in the form of nuclear weapons, and uh, they're not talked about very much. Uh, the Cold War ended, but those weapons didn't go away, mm-hmm. and uh, that you know that easily could destroy all mammalian life. So all neocortexes would go away. Mm-hmm. Conceivably, some insects might survive that um, and prosper, supposedly. Uh, so, but. Uh, if we leave aside these kinds of ex- sudden existential meltdowns, I think intelligence is useful. It is a survival advantage. That is why uh, the neocortex kept growing in size and sophistication because it was useful for survival. Mm-hmm. It enabled us human beings to survive in uh, all kinds of radical environments, which... Uh, we weren't normally suited for by using our intelligence to adapt uh, our behavior and to make inventions that overcame uh, adversity. Uh, So, I mean, I believe intelligence is is useful for individuals. It's useful for society. Uh, You mentioned that uh, intelligence could kind of get together and do something like ants in a ant society. That's, that is one advantage of AI you could have a million AIs, and they can very easily pool uh, their capability and mm-hmm. become one super AI easily. Mm-hmm. Now, human beings, you can have a million biological human beings. They can get together in society, and if you use the right kind of collaborative problem solving, they could do things that individuals can't do. We're showing that to be the case. But they don't suddenly become a million times smarter, and sometimes a million people get together and it becomes totally dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. But AIs really can pool their software and hardware. Uh, in fact, that was the essence of Watson. It's this, uh, this UMA framework takes all these different uh, AI programs and gets more intelligence out of them than any one of them by, the, by itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's an advantage of AI. They can be individual people or they can be collect, collectively intelligent. Mm-hmm. Ray, uh, you say that... Perhaps the, the, the main reason why you started looking into the way that technology progresses is so that you have the right timing for mm-hmm. your inventions. So let me ask you this then. What's next for Ray Kurzweil? What is coming down the pipeline within the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Well, I think we're now poised to make really significant advances in understanding natural language. Uh, look at how fantastically useful search engines are uh, they have a little bit of natural language understanding. They're doing a little bit more than keyword searches, but they're not really understanding those billions of documents out on the web. Uh, imagine if they really read them and understood them and aren't just looking for keywords and synonyms and so on. Uh, that's where we're headed, and I think that'll be tremendously useful. Uh, we can have little assistants that help us uh, along uh, answer our questions before we answer them, before we even know we had a question because they're listening in on our conversations, they're listening both verbal, written, watching everything you read and write, and uh, 
like a like a helpful friend saying, oh, you know, you should look into this, or somebody just did this research that's very relevant to what you were talking about with Joe yesterday. And so, uh, what's the what's the project or the 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 invention that you're working on to take advantage of those trends, for example? Being able to understand natural language documents, something that Watson did weekly. I mm -hmm. think we can do a better job. Mm -hmm. uh, and that can be beneficial across a whole range of applications. I mean, things like Siri, yeah. uh, I think it's pretty weak in natural language understanding, but I think it's cool that people are actually talking to their phones <laughs> in something resembling natural language, but I think we can do a much better job at that. It knows the meaning of life, the universe, and everything, for yeah, example. 42, yeah, 42. <laughs> so it's pretty smart that way. Um, Ray, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. The last question that I always ask my guests is always the same, and that is, what is the single most important message that you would like to carry across to our viewers today? If there's a single thing that they take away from this conversation with you today, what would you like that to be? Well, it's be who you would like to be. Imagine what you have the most passion for. This is kind of old advice, but it really is relevant. Uh, and that's what you should do. Uh, no matter what age you are, um, it's not the case that you have to be an engineer or a computer scientist to benefit from the future. There's tremendous explosion of need for graphic arts because of the web and music for the same reason. And uh, if you happen to have a passion for music, like my father did, that's what you should pursue. There's many different forms of human knowledge, and these forms are multiplying. There isn't just music. There's you know hundreds of genres now, and uh, the technology is, is helping us to be productive. There's a democratization of the tools of creativity. Uh, almost anybody can get access to the tools to be creative in, in the field that excites you. Uh, if you don't have that passion, then explore lots of different avenues. That's what kids should do. I mean, some kids, I mean, I had a passion from a young age. My father did. Uh, some kids, it's not clear. So they should, they should experiment with lots of different things. Uh, but when something really turns you on, that's what you should pursue. And don't be too concerned about what's practical. Um, because the, the tools of being able to make a difference in the world are in everybody's hands. So, for example, for a struggling blogger like me, who has managed to garner a lot of attention, but is so far failing as an entrepreneur, uh, I, I should continue. Well, you have a lot of followers. You're a filmmaker. Uh, blogging suddenly has, you know, t included video, and uh, so these uh, narrow concepts become more. Uh, broadly defined as you as you pursue them. Mm -hmm. The deeper uh, and, you get, yes. And blogging has led you to explore lots of different interesting topics. Absolutely. Uh, Meet incredible people, go yeah. to incredible places. Like so I think you're following universe. your passion, and, and that's what people should do. Dr. Kurzweil, thank you very much My for pleasure. being with us today. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
Clarity.